All right. Hey, everyone. Welcome uh, to The Exchange. So glad you guys are here. My name is Josiah. Um, glad you guys are here this morning. If you would, do me a favor and turn to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. We've been in the Gospel of Mark really since we started. So uh, we're in chapter 10 already. We're flying by. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. We would love to get you a Bible so you can follow along with us. But Mark chapter 10, raise your hand. We'll pass out some Bibles to you guys. So a couple quick things I want to share with you guys while you're turning there. Um, we, uh, as you guys maybe saw on the way in, after service is over, we're going to have like a back-to-school bash. Um, we have some peats out there, we'll have some snow cones. We say it's for the kids, but in reality it's for you guys. Um, but we're going to have a little back-to-school bash for the kids and just kind of hang out. So please grab some. Please eat and be a part of that. Some people right now are outside getting that ready. <coughs> so we're looking forward to that. Also, as you're just turning there, one more thing. <coughs> so the school, Quiet Water's called this week, and really cool opportunity. Um, they actually called and said, hey, since it's back to school week, would you guys mind if uh, the church would come and host lunch, pay for lunch? Uh, we would love if you could just come and bless the teachers. So we're like, yes, of course, we, we cannot pass it up. So they called this week about Monday, uh, providing lunch for 130 faculty uh, here. So we're like, yeah, we would love to buy you guys lunch. So um, we're going to do that. Uh, if you would like to be a part, just come see me or leader. We're just going to wear our shirts. We're just going to go to the teachers, thank them for what they're doing and their involvement. So that's tomorrow. We'll be here at like 11.15, start serving lunch by like 11.30. Hungry Howie's is coming. Uh, if you'd like to be part of that, please do. If you'd like to give to that, that would be great too. But uh, we're trying to help just bless the teachers. So that is tomorrow at 11.15. A cool opportunity just to be at the place, at the place that we have church every week. So we're excited for that. Uh, hey, Mark chapter 10. If you're new, I just want to take a second to review. So Mark, this is the shortest gospel of the four gospel. Uh, this is known as the ADD gospel. We've talked about that. Mark's favorite word in this book is the word immediately. He moves on to the next. Immediately, immediately, immediately. And I like this gospel for that reason. I kind of need that. I kind of need to move on. Uh, but Mark is pretty quick paced. Mark was discipled by a guy named Peter. Peter calls Mark his son in the faith. So an interesting fun fact is the gospel of Mark is most likely the gospel of Peter's that Peter passed on to Mark. So we have seen, and we will see, some Peterisms in this book. Now, Mark, so far in the, in the gospel, has basically been shown us, this is who Jesus is, this is what he did, you decide. Look what Jesus said, look what he did, you decide who he is. You, you, you say if he is truly who he claims to be. Now we're kind of entering into some of the teachings of Jesus. And Mark doesn't shy away from the hard teachings. If you're here with us last week, last week we talked about hell and the reality of hell, and the pain of hell, and the endlessness of hell, and the endless suffering of hell. And if I didn't offend you last week, I'll probably offend you this week as we talk about divorce and marriage and remarriage. Um, so don't worry, I'm an equal opportunity offender here. We're going we're gonna to look at this, whether it's last week, this week, next week, we're talking about not loving money. So as the last few weeks, just praying, I'm going, God, just give us the words. Like, I want to represent you well in this. Because in reality, honestly, I, there's many times I read the word, and I go, this stings a bit. I don't like this. This is not how I would say it. And when we come to those points, we decide, well, who, who surrenders whose will? Do I surrender my will? Does God surrender his will? Like, who, who wins in that instance? So let me just say this. Today's topic, what we're going to talk about really is divorce and marriage and remarriage. That's really the topic today. And this, yes, this is a theological issue, but this is also a very personal issue. Maybe you've walked through this. Maybe someone you love and know has walked through divorce and remarriage. I've had close family members, siblings, who've walked through this. It's very difficult. It's very painful. And so let me just kind of start off by saying a couple of things. One, number one is this. This will not be exhaustive. There's no way in one sermon 
I'm probably going to answer all of your questions. We would do like a 12-week series on that, but that would probably frustrate everyone. So this will not be exhaustive. This will be as best as we can looking at this text and getting to the heart of the message, what Jesus is saying about this topic. So this will not be exhaustive. Also, let me just say this. Number two is this is controversial, meaning there are great men and women on both sides of the camp. There's a lot of different perspectives when it comes to divorce and remarriage, and there's great men and great women on both sides. And I'll say it's hard to be very dogmatic on something when I go, man, I read what this guy says, and I, I respect that. I read what this person says, and I respect that. And so we're going to do our best to just kind of show you, come to the conclusion as best as we can of what Jesus is saying here, and saying it probably will sting. But at the end of the day, again, are we going to submit to what Jesus says or to what we like to hear? Just let me just read a verse to you really quick. And as I read this passage, as I read this text, this verse came to mind. It's 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 4. But Paul wrote there in 2 Timothy, he says, For the time is coming... When people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And this is one of those things where this is a teaching that people go, I don't like this. I don't like, your, I don't like this conclusion. I want to I find something else on this. Here's what happens. Let me just explain. They did this in Jesus' day. We do this today. So often we'll go to Jesus and say, Jesus, I have a question for you. If you answer it the way I like, I will follow you. If you don't answer it the way I like, I won't follow you. That's the problem. We're basically going to Jesus and saying, Jesus, if you say the things I want to hear, then great, you and me are good. If you don't say the things I, I want to hear, we're not good. So in that moment, who's God? In that moment, who has the final word? And so that's the problem. So often, again, I can do this, we can do this our own way. Jesus, you said something, I don't like it, so can you change what you said? Or maybe I'm going to try to find some way to wiggle out of this and change what you really said. And we just can't do that. This is one of those things where I want to do my best to just kind of say, here's God's word, here's what he says. As difficult as it might be, I believe through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can submit to it and we can actually experience life that comes from this. And we can actually experience good that comes from this. So again, this is a very personal thing. And please let me say this, when it comes to marriage and divorce and remarriage, this is not math, right? Like this is not as easy to be like, well, if you do this plus this, this equals this. There are so many tangibles and there's so many variables and it gets difficult. And let me again just, I'll say this later, but do not try to umpire your own life when it comes to this. Do not say, I know how to umpire my life. I know how to make these decisions objectively. We say invite people into that process with you. Invite the leaders of the church into that process with you when it comes to marriage and divorce and remarriage. This is not a small thing. This is the second biggest decision we'll make. So with that, we want to do our best to really show the heart of Jesus, to show the, like, a pastoral heart of Jesus even, to look at his word in this way, because this is not just a theological issue. This is very personal, and it's very, it stings for a lot of us. But I really do believe, and here's, here's, here's the hope, I really do believe if we get this and submit to this, we'll experience healthier marriages, we'll experience healthier family dynamics. And so like, I want to like, get to the, the bottom of this. So let's just read this. It's Mark chapter 10. We're going to read verse 1 through 16, all right? Mark chapter 10, verse 1 through 16. <clears throat> Jesus says, or it says, <clears throat> verse 1, <clears throat> Then he arose from there and came to the region of Judea by the, the other side of the Jordan, and multitudes gathered to him again. And as he was accustomed, he taught them again. The Pharisees came and asked him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Testing Jesus. And he answered and said to them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and to dismiss her. 
And Jesus answered and said to them, because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this precept. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then, they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. In the house, his disciples also asked him again about the same matter. So he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Verse 13, then they brought little children to Jesus that he might touch them, but the disciples rebuked those who brought them. But when Jesus saw it, he was greatly displeased. And he said to them, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them for of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. And he took them up in his arms and he laid his hands on them and he blessed them. All right, leave it to Jesus to talk about marriage, divorce, remarriage, and gender all in the same breath. All right, um, <laughs> we're going to do our best just to unpack this and find and discover the heart of Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, um, we come to you because where else can we go? Lord, you alone have the words of life. And Lord, that's why we're here. That's why we read. That's why we study Jesus. God, we admit that our way has led to so much pain. And God, we look to you because we want to do it the way you, you designed, that you originated. Uh, so God, I just ask that you'd be here. Lord, I ask that you would just... Um, for, for hearts that are hurting when it comes to these topics, Jesus, that you'd also just comfort, that, God, you make all things new, that you restore things, and God, that you reconcile things, and that's what we ask for today. So, Jesus, we ask by your spirit that this would be much more than just a, a Bible study, but, God, that you would do heal, healing, that you would do surgery on our hearts, and that we just learn and hear from you, Jesus, in your wonderful name. Amen. Ladies, I'm curious, uh, growing up as a little girl, how many of you just fantasize about the perfect man living in the perfect house, having the perfect children, you even named your perfect children, and you just had the perfect life? How many of you, to some extent, fantasize something like that, right? Okay. Now, for the guys, let me talk to you. You probably had a different fantasy as a teenager, right? Enough said. Uh, my point is, both of us have had different fantasies we've dreamt about marriage or expectations of marriage, of what it would look like. And here's the reality. We, we have expectations, and then we do have reality. And, and there's sometimes you go, man, my expectations were here. The reality of this is here. This is so difficult. I'm trying to understand this. And let's just talk about this, because I don't need to like, bust out the stats, but you know, the most anyone who does statistics on marriage, they basically say the same thing. Around 50% of marriages end in divorce. 50%. And it seems like we're okay with that. It seems like, yeah, yeah, I've heard that before. And I want you to think about how detrimental that is for a second. If I told you, hey, there's a 50% chance on the way home, uh, your kids are going to be driving, they're getting in an accident, and it's going to be a really bad accident. 50% chance. Don't you think we'd be dramatic in our approach on how, how we go, oh my gosh, 50% chance. If I said, hey, you're going to go to your mailbox today and grab the mail, and a Florida Panther's going to come out, 50% chance it's going to happen today. Like, wow. Like, you would change how you'd approach your mailbox. You, you would like, okay, I'm not going to go today. Or, uh, there'd be just a different approach to it. And, and here's what I'm trying to say. When you hear those numbers, 50%, we're like, what? And, and you see people really kind of recklessly or carelessly or without really discernment enter into marriage where you realize 50% is detrimental. It's painful. And here's what I want to say. If you were to ask me today and say, Josiah, is a healthy, God-honoring marriage possible? Honestly, my answer would be yes. Yes, it is. But it's not likely. 
if you continue on the same path that so many continue on. A God-honoring marriage that you enjoy, that you love for life, till death do you part, that is possible, but it's not likely the way that we prepare for marriage. It's not likely the way the world prepares for marriage. I honestly think the world does a better job at preparing us for divorce than it does for marriage. And I, I really think if we were to stop and slow down for a second, and can we just all admit, maybe growing up to some extent, we have a broken view of relationships, of marriage, of sex, of romance. We, have, we all have grown up, maybe we've seen, maybe you have great examples, maybe you have not so great examples. And I think to some extent we need to kind of admit and say, you know, I probably have a broken perspective that I'm bringing into this marriage. And, and I've probably watched too many shows or too many movies that have kind of skewed my expectations of marriage. And here's what we want to say. We're trying to suggest to you a new way, a different way, a better way. And, and better meaning the way that God originally created it to be. A way that says, you know, the world might say this about sex, relationships, marriage, but here's what God says about those things. And, and if we can just get that and just submit to that, we'd experience so much more joy in marriage. And so how do, how, what does Jesus say about marriage? What does the Bible say about marriage? How, how like, can we do this the way God designed? Because I want you to notice, they have a question to, for Jesus, and Jesus answers something different. They, they have a question for Jesus about marriage and divorce, and he, he answers it, but he also doesn't in some ways. And so here's what we're going to look at as we just break down Mark chapter 10, verse 1 through 16, as we talk about marriage and divorce and remarriage. Look at these three things up here. Number one, we'll see this. We're going to see the priority of marriage. Uh, number two, we'll see the permanence of marriage. And number three, we'll see the presence of Jesus. All right, the priority of marriage. We hear Jesus talk about the permanence of marriage. And we're going to look at the presence of Jesus. So let's just break this down again, really quick. Number one, the priority of marriage. What is the context? What's happening here? Look in verse two, Mark chapter 10, verse two. It says, the Pharisees came and asked Jesus, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife, testing him? And he answered and said to them, what did Moses command you? They said Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and to dismiss her. Let's just stop there really quick. Pharisees are coming to Jesus. The, the context really is important. Pharisees are coming to Jesus, testing him. They don't really want the answer. They want to know, they're trying to trap him and saying, do you agree with us? Do you agree with popular belief? Do you agree with what we define Moses' interpretation is and what popular culture defines Moses' interpretation? Like, do you agree with what's popular? And they're trying to really test Jesus, and they do this all the time. Not that they necessarily wanted the answer, but they wanted Jesus to give an answer that would either shame him publicly to some extent. Now, now let me even, again, point this out, but in the common thought of this day, there's primarily two rabbis of this day, and there's two common thoughts. You had a more liberal approach to marriage and divorce and a more conservative approach to marriage and divorce, just like today in so many other areas, right? There's two different rabbis, and this is what they said. One guy, we'll put them up here for you, Rabbi Shammai basically said the only grounds for divorce is adultery uh, or sexual morality. That's the only grounds for divorce, all right, the more conservative way. Uh, Rabbi Hillel said, uh, divorce can happen for anything, even burnt toast, literally. Uh, you can read the writings, and he says, if she burns the bread, that is qualifications for divorce. <laughs> now, let me just explain. These were two common thoughts. One thought was, hey, you cannot get a divorce unless there's sex outside of marriage or something sexual outside of the marriage covenant. The other thought was, let's define uncleanness. I think uncleanness can mean she's really not meeting, meeting the levels I think she should meet. And I don't want you to even notice, obviously, maybe you felt this already. It feels very male dominant. And Jesus even corrects that. We'll, we'll get back to that. Jesus doesn't just single out the males. He, he calls out males and females. They both have responsibility. But I want you to see, they go, can we do that? And they're, they're asking Jesus this question, and it's based off of Deuteronomy 24. So it's probably good for us to know Deuteronomy 24. I'll just throw you the first verse. Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. This is what they're quoting. When they said, Moses said, Deuteronomy 24, <clears throat> verse 1. Uh, it says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that he finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, 
and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house. And it's dealing with a different issue. Actually, in Deuteronomy 24, this was to protect the woman so that she could say, no, I did not leave my husband, don't stone me. This is to give her a certificate. It's actually in a way to protect her, but looking at Deuteronomy 24, they're saying Moses permits it. He says if we find uncleanness in her. Again, the question then is what is uncleanness? And that's where these two rabbis came in. That's where the two common thoughts of the day came in. They said uncleanness obviously is referring to sex or sex outside of marriage, then you have a right to divorce. The other answer is no, 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 uncleanness could be anything. One guy even said, if you find someone prettier, that means she's unclean, you can marry the person who's prettier. (laughs) And here's the point of this, and I'm trying to bring this out. We still do this today. Because in our own way, in our own wording, we're basically saying, as long as my needs are met, as long as I'm happy, I will stay. As soon as my needs are not met, I'm I'm giving this up. And we've really adapted the same mindset. We still adapt the same consumer mindset. If this person makes me happy, I'll stay married. If they don't make me happy, we're gone. And I want you to think about the insecurities that that brings. I want you to think about the eggshells. that that would be like walking on eggshells in your marriage saying, hey, as soon as you don't fulfill my every need, we're done. And now marriage is about what can I get out of you. Marriage is now about how can you fulfill my needs. If I find uncleanness in you, him or her, this is done. And that is the same issue still today. We just package it differently, right? If you do not meet my level of expectations, if you do not say what I want you to say and do what I want you to do, we're done here. And it's sad how we've still ad- adopted this. Now, again, you can imagine what they're hoping Jesus says. The Pharisees, who we know are more conservative naturally, are actually bent towards Rabbi Hillel. They're, they want to hear Jesus say, you can get divorced for any reason. That's what they want to hear Jesus say. They want to say, hey, look at Deuteronomy 24. Look what Moses said. Are you going to argue with what Moses said? He permits it. He allows it. And that's what they're trying to point back to. And I want to point something out. This is interesting to me. Jesus asked what question. What did Moses say? Moses wrote Genesis through Deuteronomy. Moses wrote Genesis chapter 2 and 3, God's original plan for marriage. And they, instead of going back to the beginning, they go to Deuteronomy 24. They, they go, oh, Moses wrote Deuteronomy 24. They could have answered, well, Moses wrote in the very beginning. So Jesus goes, let me tell you what else Moses wrote. So I want you to see Jesus also telling them, here's what Moses wrote. And he goes back to Genesis 2 and 3, and he's pulling out really from different, uh, Genesis 1, 2, and 3. He's pulling out from different sections, and he's kind of combining this idea of here's what marriage is. So Jesus gets, gets back to the intent. He gets back to the original heart and plan of God. So before he even answers the question, you notice how I love Jesus, right? We know he does this. Someone asks him a question, he asks you another question, and he tries to get back to the origin of it. And, and you don't see him really fit into either camp necessarily perfectly. So let me explain this. Let's keep reading. Verse, verse 5. We're going to see again the priority of marriage. Verse 5. So he's like, what did Moses write? <clears throat> and Jesus said, they, they're like, well, Moses said we can. Verse 5. Jesus answered and said to them, because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this precept. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh, so then that they are no longer two, but one flesh. Jesus gets back to the intent, the true desire, the true design for marriage. And I want us to see that. Because they're going, I just want to know what I can do. Will you affirm what I can do? And Jesus goes, let's just talk about the original intent of God and of marriage. God created this. God invented this. It's interesting. If you do look at marriage throughout history, every culture, every civilization has some sort of idea of marriage. Of this is my person for life. This is, she's mine. He's mine. Don't touch her. Like, they have this idea. Where does that come? People say that, oh, this evolved over time. We just needed to grow in our social status. We see that, really, God created marriage. God designed marriage. This is even before sin came into the world. This is pre-fall. This is God's original design and intent. And Jesus is getting back to the very beginning saying, but from the beginning. Moses wrote, because your hearts are hard, but from the beginning, 
we see that God brought this together. This is God's design. And he's going back to the motives. And here's what I want to say. This is what Jesus is saying. He says, you're asking what's permissible. I'm answering what's intended. And please do not miss this. They go, like all good little Christian lawyers, I want to know Jesus. What can I do? They want to know what's permissible. And Jesus says, well, here's the intent of God. And here's why this is so important, because we do this all the time. I get questions all the time like this. We go, hey, can I do this as a Christian? Can I do that as a Christian? Am I allowed to do this? And Paul says what? All things are lawful. All things are permissible, but not all things are beneficial. And then we go, okay, 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 but still, can I do this? <laughs> right? And here's what we do. Jesus is saying, stop asking what you can and cannot do and start asking what is the will of God. And this is so important. It's not so much what can I do, what can I not do, but what is God's original intent and will? We got to change the question. And we do this and think about this. You could create so many scenarios like I can. Am I allowed to do X as a Christian? All things are lawful, not all things are beneficial. Can I still do X as a Christian? That is not the question we're we should be asking. Jesus is even like changing, saying you're, you're starting at the wrong point. You're starting at the ending. I want to get back to the beginning. Let's change how we approach this. What is the original intent and heart of God? And this is so important, church. And this is for me, this is so important. It's not a matter of if, but should I? Is this your will? Is this what you originally want, God? Is this what you created? Yes, eventually we might talk to, can I, should, but let's talk to what does God, what is God's like will for this specifically? So Jesus says, let's look at the beginning. What did he say from the beginning? Verse six again, more time. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. All right, now let's talk about this too, because this is interesting. Uh, if you read the, the Genesis account, when God creates everything, it's really interesting. God speaks and it happens, right? So God's like light, there's light. God's like creatures, there's creatures. God's like vegetation, there's vegetation. Like whatever he says, it, it comes. God stops in Genesis 1 and goes, I want to make man in my image. And male and female, he made them to bear the image of God. And it's done a little bit differently. It's just like God stopped and paused, and he goes, to make image bearers of me, he goes, it's going to make one male, one female, in this relationship of marriage, really, of covenantal relationship, of being together, they're going to reflect me. Let me even say, like, God for God, gender is not an afterthought. God is saying, one man, one woman, both reflect me. And can I tell you that elevates the opposite sex? And that's a beautiful thing for us as followers of Jesus. To say, hey, males and females are both created in the image of God, and you really need both to reflect God's image. Now Genesis 3 came in, sin came in, that's, things are tainted now, sin came into the world, things are broken, yes. But we've got to see that God originally created male and female to bear his likeness. And we see that Jesus is affirming, hey, gender is not an afterthought to God. This is a beautiful thing that God created to make in his image. It's a beautiful thing. Let's not diminish that. I don't want to put down women. Women should not put down men. Like, this is a beautiful thing. We both make up the image of God. What a, what a beautiful thing we see with, with Jesus is say, pointing back to. And so that God from the beginning designed this, created this, and then we'll keep reading in verse 7. What does Jesus say? He says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. Now, if you would, circle the word joined. Joined, maybe your version says cleaved. He cleaved to his wife. Um, here's what I want to point out. This word joined to his wife, literally, it's talking about he vowed to his wife. He covenanted with his wife. It's really saying in Hebrew, he's talking about, hey, man shall leave father, mother, and now be covenanted with this person. Joined with this person. Vowed with this person for life that there's some sort of public declaration of the covenant, that there's some sort of connection that people now witness and see, that I am for you and you are for me, I am my beloved, my beloved is mine, and we see, like, this is what I want to point out. Whenever I will do a wedding and I'll meet with a couple, 
I will talk with them and then talk about the idea of what is a covenant, what are you really entering into, because some people want to write their own vows, and they write their vows, and it's like, I will love you because you're so beautiful. You're like, eh, that's not a good covenant. Like, we try to, like, work with them, like, what is a covenant? What does that look like? And here, here's what I want to point out. It's very easy, it's very easy to proclaim your present love for someone. It's very easy when you're both young, and, and there's no kids, and you're in shape, and you're like, I will love you forever. Like, that's kind of easy, right? It's a little bit more difficult when you're saying, I'm not promising you my present love, I'm, I'm promising you my future love. That's what the covenant is saying. I'm going to love you. And again, it is better or worse. It is richer or poor. It's, it's when my body's falling apart, your body's falling apart. It's when things are tough. We can't, I'm going to love you. I'm, gonna, I'm, promising to pro, I'm promising you my future love, not just my present love. That's a big part of the idea of a covenant. And you see that this like, we will shall cleave to each other. You're going to be joined together. And you become one together. Jesus moves on and says that, and we'll keep reading verse 8. He says, And the two shall become one flesh, so then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Now let me explain this, because this is kind of cool too. So God creates man. Adam's in the garden. Read Genesis 2. God says, hey, it's time for you to like, name the animals. And if you remember, he brings, them in, he brings them to Adam, and Adam's naming the animals. And here's the thing. God is trying to show Adam, hey, do you notice that you're alone? Hey, do you notice that this isn't good? Remember in Genesis, God said there's one thing not good. God's like, this is good, this is good. One thing that's not good. It's not good for man to be alone. If you're a man that's alone, say amen. Amen. All right. See, it's not good news. It's not good for man to be alone. Like, it's dangerous. There's a side of it. It's not good for man to be alone. And he's like, I will make him a helper comparable to him. Now, let me even explain this. You know what he does? He's like, Adam, name the animals. And he's bringing these animals, like, and think about this. He's seeing the animals in twos come to him. And eventually, God's trying to show, like, hey, do you see that? You're, you're alone here. And I, I wonder if, like, for Adam, like, a single guy, like, no, Jesus, we're good. Like, I got you. We're, we're good. Like, this is pretty good. But eventually over time, you're like, hey, like, I need that. I need that. I need that help me. I need that person comparable. I need that. What, they have twos. I need that. What is that? It probably got, like, boring naming the animals. He's like, uh, grasshopper. He starts naming them, like, what they do. Like, oh, you hop on grass. <laughs> Fly. That was tough. Like, he's probably just, like, boring. He's like, I need help here. Like, again, we need help. And so what happens? God brings Eve out of his side. And what does Adam do? Let's just talk about this. God brings Eve out of his side. What does he do? He's saying, now this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. He, he writes poetry. <laughs> he sings a song. This is like, I'm sure maybe you ladies you love this. He like literally sees his wife and goes, oh, I'm singing. I don't know what I'm singing, but I'm singing. He starts singing to her. Like this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And he's basically saying we're equal. We're equal. Not above, not lesser. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. There's, e- there's equality there. You're me, I'm you. We're, we're together on this. The two shall become one flesh. I love how one guy said it. John Stott wrote it this way. He said, uh, and it might sound strange, he said, sex and marriage is more than a union, it's a reunion. And, and here's kind of the idea. God designed, before sin came into the world, before the fall, before just this mess came in, God designed there to be two people who come together and make one. God designed it that way, he created it that way, to become one, to become one financially, to become one emotionally, to become one spiritually, to become one socially, like in every area of life, like nothing's private, nothing's secret. Where there is secrets, intimacy dies. Where there is, I, I, well, this is my world and this is your world? No. Two becoming one is two abandoning their world and forming one new world. The idea of two becoming one is I'm abandoning my world, you're abandoning your world, we're going to form one new world together. We're going to form one new person together. It's funny, when I've sat down with some couples and it's like, all right, let's talk. Um, have you guys talked about joining your bank accounts? It's like, what? No. How, how dare, why'd you say that? Like, don't say that. And like, it's like, no, like, you're going to become one in every area. And if they don't like think, like, have you guys like, hey, what are you about thinking about sharing toothbrush? Like, don't even, that's gross. But like, it's funny, like, you're trying to like, just say no, like, and not that you have to by any means. But I'm saying there's a side of it where it's like, hey, you're becoming one. Are you ready for that? Because it's, it's almost painful at times. Two becoming one, two being formed to one, it's going to be painful. But God's like, this is what I've designed. And, and can I tell you again, when God created 
when God created the earth, he did not create a father, son, father, daughter, mother, son, mother, daughter. He did not create this parent relationship. He created a husband and wife relationship. This is the most important relationship. This is the primary relationship outside of our relationship with God. And yet we take it sometimes so lightly. We'll enter into a covenant sometimes so lightly. And, we're, and God is saying the priority is marriage is one, two, becoming one for life. Jesus is getting back to really the heart and intent of God. That it's one male, one female. Not the three shall become one. Not the four shall become. It's one man, one woman becoming one. Jesus gets back to the original intent and heart and desire for God. And I think this is so important because now Jesus actually does bring clarity because the disciples, this kind of even freaks out the disciples. Like, hey, Jesus, can you explain more about this? Right? Like, what are you trying to say? So let's talk about the permanence of marriage. Look at verse 9, the permanence of marriage. It says, therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. In the house of his disciples also, they asked him about the same matter. So he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. In Matthew's version, they're so taken back by this. They're like, well, then who should get married? This is, this is tough. This is hard to hear. Let me clarify a few things. By the way, I so appreciate what Jesus says here and does here. It's revolutionary. Because notice the Pharisees coming and saying, oh, the male shall give her a certificate of divorce. And it just seems to be very one-sided. And Jesus says, no, no. He puts responsibility on both. And says, if the woman divorces or the man divorces, either one's committing adultery without grounds for divorce. They're committing adultery. And Jesus is bringing clarity to, like, to this. And he's showing that there's responsibility on both. And I do want to talk through this because you might read this passage and initially think, okay, so is there never grounds for divorce? Is there never grounds for divorce or remarriage? And let me even just slow because th- this is, you, we got to see the heart of God in this. If I meet with someone, you, it's weird, my position is kind of funny sometimes. I will sit down with couples for premarital. And basically my job is to make it like, not difficult, <laughs> but I like to ask questions they never asked before. I like to challenge and say, hey, like, have you thought of this? And I ask questions, I try to probe, and I try to get them to know each other, because in reality, there's excitement and joy, and you're just like this love, and like, your brain's not really thinking right, and so we're trying to slow down, talk to the couples, bring things to the surface, you know, have them really know, like, hey, who are you really committing yourself to? And we really try to walk through this. So after several weeks, a lot of times, not a lot of times, but there are times, I'll sit down with one and say, hey, do you know what like, this is? Do you know who you're marrying? Are you, are you comfortable? And I'll try to be like a, more of like a serious talk at times because you might see things come to the surface and thinking maybe not yet, maybe not ready, family members are not affirming this. Like there's no, nothing, no one around this is saying this is good. Okay, let's talk about that. And I feel like our job in many ways is to prepare them for a very healthy, strong marriage. And you almost make it like not difficult, but like really consider and count the cost. But then here's what happens. When they get married, my tone completely changes. When they're married and they come to me and say, this is hard. Josiah, why did you tell me this is hard? I, this is a lot harder than I thought. I'm like, hey, like I told you, right? My thing, though, at this point is saying, hey, you fight for this. Like, you fight for this. You're in this. You, you, we talk through a covenant. We talk through the vows. We talk through what you're doing. We talk through the other problems you knew you were going to face. My conversation flips to that moment. It's like, you knew. We, people around you, we sat down with you. We talked to you. And you're like, in the moment, and it's weird how you kind of go from like, are you sure? Are you sure? And then they're married. It's like, stay, stay. Like, fight, fight for this. And here's why I'm bringing this up. Because so often, I do talk to many people, and their first thought is, okay, we must get a divorce. This is too hard. This is too difficult. That is the first option to them. And, and for us, that is not the second or third or fifth. It is the very, very last thing that we're trying to talk through. And here's why, again, I bring this up. Jesus, you do see the seriousness of this, right? Jesus goes, you can divorce your spouse. If you marry another, you're committing adultery. 
marriage is permanent. Verse 9, he says, what God, look at verse 9, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Let me be clear. God has brought this together. If you stood up there, you're a believer and this person's a believer, and you stood up there on that altar, and you made these vows to one another, don't think for a second that you brought that together. Don't think for a second, I made this happen. If that, that's happened, and you had people confirm this and affirm this, and you went through all, and you, if that happened, God brought you together. And so Jesus says, don't let man separate with something that God has brought together. Don't let man try. You can't uncreate something God created. God took two individuals and made them one. A beautiful new creation. You can't make that one and make it uncreated. Let's take the two that became one, now uncreate the one back to two. He goes, what God has joined together, let's not cut it in half. Let's not put it asunder. And then this is hard. Again, this is a hard word. The disciples hear this and go, this is hard. Then who should get married? Matthew 19, that's what they ask. Then who should do this? This is really hard. But here's what I, I have to point out, and here's what I want to talk about. Because I don't want to assume that in one text, every answer is questioned. Every question is answered in one text. I don't want to assume that. I also want to keep some things in mind. I want to keep in mind who Jesus is talking to here. I want to keep in mind the spirit they approach Jesus in. Because, again, we've also been around relationships where you go, wow. We've seen some things where you go, that guy's channel nonstop, unrepentant. He's not, he's not in community. He, he said he's a believer, but he's just sleeping with whoever walks around. Like, this is not healthy. This is not good. We've seen abusive things. We've seen the, the non-believer say, I want out of this. So it's very hard from one text to say, here's the full spectrum of marriage from one text. So let me just share a few things with you guys, because I think this is beneficial. I hope this helps. It might raise up more questions, maybe, but let's just talk through this. I want to give you a summary of just some of main thoughts when it comes to di- divorce and remarriage. Some, a summary of theological positions on this, all right? And we'll just throw this up here really quick. Uh, number one, divorce is never permi- permitted for any reason. There are those who hold this. Divorce is never permitted for any reason. Number two, divorce is permitted for adultery only, but remarriage is not allowed. It's another position many hold. Number three, divorce is permitted for adultery and desertion of an unbelieving spouse, but remarriage is never permitted. Another common view is divorce is permitted for adultery and desertion of unbelieving spouse, and the remarriage to a believer is granted to the innocent party. So here's kind of like the most common views, biblically. If you're trying to come to a certain conclusion, now let me say this before you're like, where are you? Are you two, three, four? What are you, like, what are you at? Here, let me just say this. Um, in this process this week, honestly, even as studying there's so many men and women I respect on both sides. There are some great articles I read on number one. There's some great articles I read on number four. My hope, th- my hope here is that no one gets to this point where they become clenched fists on this and goes, how dare this church hold a view of X when I really believe it's that I think, honestly, you're going to see great men and women differ on this, and I'm going to have more of a gentle spirit in approaching this. So I want to make sure that's clear. I want to make sure that the heart is not for me to cling to what I might hold. Now let me even share a few things, because rather than even talking about this, like we need to talk about God's, again, God's intent in this. And let me clarify Mark chapter 10, because in Mark 10, I think there's some key things to keep in mind as you read this text, because you might read verse 10 through 12 and say, so I can never get divorced or remarriage, is that what verse 10 through 12 says? That as soon as I divorce or marry, I'm committing adultery, is that what you're telling me? So let's just keep in mind a few things. Number one is this. Uh, The context is key. The context is key. Who is Jesus speaking to? A bunch of Pharisees? who are going to him and want to know, can I divorce my wife for any reason? They were abusing this. They were commonly abusing this back in this day. They're actually, it says in Matthew 19, they want to know for any reason, for any reason, can I divorce her? So I think Jesus, here's what I'm trying to bring up. Jesus is not speaking to someone who's been divorced. He's not necessarily speaking to someone who's broken by it. He's not speaking to like the woman at the well. He's not speaking to the woman caught in adultery. Do you notice those two stories? Jesus' tone is much different. He's speaking to Pharisees who want to justify their position. 
So I think Jesus can have a different tone in this. Others will say in verse 10 through 12 that Jesus says this because they're saying, um, I want a divorce for any reason. Jesus says, no, 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 that's not allowed. Not for any reason. If you do that, you're committing adultery. So that's also, context is really key. I'll also bring up, we'll just move through a couple of these. I think they're all here. Uh, because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this precept. This is what he says. Now we're like, what does that mean? Again, he goes back to God's original intent in this. But here's how I want to put, put this. This is not a command, but a concession. This is not a command. Deuteronomy 24 is not a command, but a concession. That there will be times, and I really do think, as we'll talk about this, but with other people and leaders and spiritual leaders in your life, you say the, the only option at this point is divorce. That's not the first or 10th or 20th, but you look on it, and there are, there are times you'll come to that conclusion. And so Jesus even acknowledges that. Hey, this was warranted because people's hearts are hard. Because they don't want reconciliation. Because they're not going to fight for this marriage. Because they're, they're cold-hearted and they're hard-hearted. That's not God's desires that people's hearts are cold-hearted or hard-hearted, but he acknowledges that that is the reality for some. And in that case, there seems to be that divorce is an option at that, at that point. Number three, let me just point this out. Uh, because he says, this, or number three is, this is not only Jesus', Jesus only teaching. Read Matthew 5, read Matthew 19. Jesus does seem to bring clarity and says, hey, if you divorce, except for sexual morality. The point is, there seems to be other cases where Jesus says, hey, there are times when divorce is allowed. Again, that's not the first option. It's not, my wife cheated on me, let's get divorced. It's just still reconciliation is the goal. Still fighting for that's the goal. Number four, let me make this clear too. Uh, 1 Corinthians 7 seems to allow divorce when non-Christians abandon the marriage. And if you want to read this later, and again, like I said, I can't make this completely exhaustive, but if you read 1 Corinthians 7, chapter 7, verse 15 specifically, he says that the non-believer wants to depart, let him depart. At that point in time, the believer is not bound. And there's so many disagreements about what that means. Does not bound mean they're just separated? Does that not bound mean you're divorced? Does not bound mean you're, you're not only you're not, you can get a divorce, but you can also remarry. And rather than you just trying to read who you like, I would say wrestle with this with the leaders and other people in the church. Again, please hear this. Because I think this, there's a call to action for, for us in this. And here's what I mean. Here's the call to action. Um, let me just bring into mind a few important things. Just a few important things. Marriage is a gift. Marriage is a gift that God created, that God had designed. And not only that, but marriage was intended for life. That was God's intent in this. Also, uh, marriage is fulfilled with one man and one woman, as we talked about. Jesus acknowledges divorce will occur, but it's not his original plan. And, f and again, forgiveness, or number the last thing is divorce without biblical cause and remarried to another is to commit adultery. These are just some clarifying facts I want to put up here as we just talk through this. And here's why I'm bringing this up. I think for a church, there's a few things that we're called to. There's a few things when it comes to divorce and remarriage that we are called to. And I want to talk through these slowly. There's a call to counsel. There's a call to courage. And there's a call to compassion. And, and here's, let me explain this. There's a call to counsel. No one should be umpiring their own life and saying, well, I heard this study once, so therefore I have rights here. At this point in time, you should get together with the leaders, the elders. Hebrews 13 talks about that. 1 Peter 5 talks about that. There is a weight and responsibility as we pray and we fast. And we say, like, you should do this with others. If you're considering divorce, do not, do not do that alone. Walk into that with other people around you. Do not let that be your first thought, we beg. God has given us the ministry of reconciliation to reconcile the world to God. And I really, I believe to reconcile relationships. And so walk through that with others as well. Like there needs to be a call to counsel saying, I need, I need advice, I need help. I know that I'm prone to serve me. I'm prone to do what I want. I'm prone to do the easy thing. I'm prone to take the easy way out. Yes, know that about yourself. So invite other people into that. There is a call to counsel. 
I'll say there's a call to courage. Like, I think too many people will say, I have grounds, I'm going to get divorced. And it's like, no, like, this might be hard. This might be really difficult. And show some courage in this moment. Like, fight for this. Don't forget the vows you made. Like, fight for that. And I'll say, last, there's a call to compassion. Because divorce will happen. And it is painful. And, and when it talks about the two shall become one and not to cut, it's almost like amputation. It's almost like cutting off, a, it's, it's very painful, but maybe it's necessary for there to still be life. Amputation is incredibly painful, but maybe it's necessary for there to be life. It's not the first option. Do you, do you see there's so many variables in this? And it's so hard to be like, here's where we, there's so many difficult sides to this. And I, I got to be clear for, for me, for you guys, for myself included, um, understand that forgiveness is available to those who confess their sins. We got to understand that. Adultery, divorce, it's not the unpardonable sin. It's not the sin that God will never forgive. It's not. Also, we got to keep in mind that we should eliminate the shame of divorce in the church. We should eliminate the shame of divorce in the church. Like someone who feels like, I'm divor- I can't even be around. I, I've messed up. I've blown it. Welcome. <laughs> you know, we're a hospital filled with six people. That's what the church is. We're not here to boast in our righteousness, but boast in Christ's righteousness. We're here to say, hey, we're sick too. Our sickness just looks different than yours. Do you get that? There's that side. There should not be that sense of shame. Can I, can I actually tell you a verse that was really hard for me and I had to pray over this and struggle with it? I'm like, God, do I show this verse? Because it's in your word, but uh. Can I tell you this is hard? I, Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 8. Here's what God says. Because our God can relate so much more than we think. Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 8. God says, Then I saw that for all the causes for which backsliding, for which backsliding Israel had committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a certificate of divorce. And I had to read about this and look at this and study this and go, God identifies himself as a divorcee. God looks on and says, I gave a certificate of divorce to Israel. Here's the thing. In Malachi, we know God, what does God say? We quote this sometimes. It's almost like rude. We sometimes do it in like a painful way. We, we know that God says, I hate divorce. We know that. He hates divorce. That's very true. And sometimes we'll use that to shame people. But if you read the book of Hosea and study Hosea, God has Hosea marry this prostitute who's constantly sleeping around. It's his wife. And she's sleeping around. And she's having, like, it's awful. And God says, you pursue her. You love her. You bring her back. Because that is Israel and that is me. I'm going to continue to pursue and love. And the same God who says, I hate divorce, also said in Hosea chapter 14, verse 4, he says, I will heal their waywardness and love them freely, for my anger has turned away from them. The same God who says, I hate divorce, says, listen, I'm going to heal your waywardness. Again, Hosea, your wife who's cheated on you with other men. This is Israel and me. I'm going to heal their waywardness. There's a side of this where I got to understand that God can relate way more than I can to people who've gone through this. Our God says, I've also had a cheating spouse and had to divorce them. That is hard. That is difficult. That is one of those things where I go, God, help me understand this. And I I love how Hosea talks about, but God is still in pursuit. And God is still pursuing that relationship. Here's what I want to say. Maybe you've made a mistake and you go, I don't know what I, I wasn't a Christian then, or I was a Christian then. I did this. I'm an innocent part. I'm the guilty party. I do believe we serve a God who makes all things new, and all things means all things. I do believe that. I do believe we serve a God who loves to reconcile people and relationships. I've seen marriages that have ended in divorce, and they did that. One was a believer, one was a non-believer, or some sort of instance like that, and I've seen them get remarried and have a successful, thriving marriage 20-plus years later. I've seen God reconcile and do things that I could never do, <laughs> that no one could ever do other than the Holy Spirit. I want to talk about this where, listen, marriage is a beautiful, sacred covenant that God commit, that God created and that we should submit to and love and serve and fight for. And once you enter into that, we should say, fight for that. Do not give up on that. There should be that. 
But I, I'm not going to be the church that says, yeah, you want a divorce, get a divorce. And I'm not going to be the church that says you should never get a divorce. I don't know always the balance. I think it's pursued with elders. I think it's pursued in prayer. I think the variables are important. I think talking to people are important. I've shared with you guys different stories of premarital counselors I've had where a couple got divorced. He told me I got divorced and didn't have grounds biblically for divorce. And he goes, and here's the woman I want to remarry. And then I go, can we talk alone? And I go, do you know what you just told me? You were a Christian and got divorced and you knew it was wrong and now you want to get remarried. What does that mean? And he's like, it means I'm committing adultery. I go, do you want to continue in that? I do. And that was a different issue. I, we didn't do the wedding. We couldn't do the wedding at that point in time. And it's difficult. <laughs> and it's painful. And it's messy. And it's one of those things where we want to fight for healthy marriages here. We want to say, listen, like, be in married couples. Fight. Be in Christian community. Be around people who love you and pray with you. Be, like, do, serve together. Read the word together. Pray together. Fight for this. It is so worth it. It is going to be difficult. <laughs> we do have expectations and then we do have reality. But marriage is, can be and will be, I believe, beautiful if we do it the way God designed it to be. That we are abandoning our two individual worlds, our, our secret thing. We're abandoning those things. We're becoming one, forming one new creation. And I say, let's fight for that. So in summary, you're like, what are you saying? I'm saying that God is so much bigger. When our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. I think if any sin is confessed and repented of, God forgives. I think we should fight for it. Health, for marriages and for healthy marriages, not just marriages. I think we should be a church that says, listen, we're gonna f we, I was at your wedding. I was watching you when you said, I do. I'm going to be here to hold you accountable to those vows. Let's fight for this first before we start playing and considering with another thought. It's not the first option, 10th option. It is the very, very last through prayer and fasting with others and brokenness and with leadership. And that's, that we need to do that together because, again, we too often enter it flippantly and we leave it flippantly and no longer. Amen? Can we be a church that fights for healthy marriages? Can we be a church that prepares people for healthy marriages? You know, we actually have a couples group here. A group uh, led by an older couple, I don't want to say older, but an older couple, older than me, that's what I mean. Uh, and they lead a group on Monday nights. And here's the thing, honestly, they want to fight for couples that are married, that are not married, that are engaged, it is available to them. We would love to invite you out to that. We are going to close service with some worship and prayer. We're going to say, at the very end, after we have announcements, we're going to say, listen, if you want prayer or need to talk, we want to be available for that. That couple will be available up here as well. Guys, I, I don't want to just do a teaching on this and be like, all right, goodbye. We know there might be a lot of questions or feelings or, or hearts stirred because of this. And again, I'm so thankful we serve a God who makes all things new. And I'm thankful that if we confess and forsake our sins, he's willing to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen? Do you mind? We're going to pray. We're going to close with some worship. A couple quick things we'll share, and we'll be up here again available for prayer. So let's pray right now. Father, we just thank you. We thank you for your word. God, it is, it, it is a sword that, that stings, but it's also a, a scalpel that does surgery and heals. And so, Lord, we just thank you for your word. God, we just pray not for our will to be done, but for yours. Not for what we want, but, God, for what you said. And so, Lord, I thank you for everyone in this room. I know there's so many different thoughts and feelings and emotions attached to this, and we want to defend, and, and Jesus, we just want to come to you and surrender. And say, Lord, we look to you, not what we think is best, but what you say. Lord, we just, we don't know what to do without you. We thank you, God, that you can relate. We thank you, God, that you identify with us. God, we thank you that you do make all things new. So we just look to you, Jesus, and say, you alone are worthy. We're here to praise you, to look to you, to find comfort and healing in you. In your wonderful and precious name, Jesus, amen. Why don't you stand and we'll end with worship.